Holly. Hey, Dave. What is going on with your bad self on the What Difference Does It Make podcast? <laughs> I want to say my big bad self, but I don't really love it. All right. If you want it, sure. I'll call you Big Bad Holly. <laughs> What's up? It's another good day for the What Difference Does It Make podcast because we get to talk to radio legend Bob Waugh. Yeah. If you grew up on the East Coast, if you grew up in New York, you might have heard him on WLIR. If you were fortunate enough to be in the Washington, D.C. area in the mid-90s, early to mid-90s during the heyday, then uh, WHFS was your station. Next to K-Rock, probably the biggest radio station in the country for alternative music. He recently stepped down from WRNR, where he was a program director. You say Washington, D.C., but it's also Baltimore. I don't know the Baltimore, D.C. <laughs> area, but uh, yeah. he was he was heard all over the place. And he is here to help us count down from the K-Rock 1985 year-end chart. We're doing number 50 to number 41. So we're getting pretty close to the end, aren't we, Dave? I don't know. Is 41 the end? Uh, no, we've got plenty more to go. And hey, if you find yourself with a little time on your hands, why don't you check us out on social media? You can find us on YouTube at What Difference Does It Make Podcast. Lots of outtakes including some from this very podcast and also on all other social media at WDDIM podcast. Let's get into it right now. This is Bob Waugh with Holly and Dave on the What Difference Does It Make podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon podcast family, don't you know? Connecting, he's on mute, now he's not, <laughs> and there he is. Hey. Hey, I can hear Hi. you. Hi. How are you? Hello. How are you guys? And how are you? Very good. Congratulations on this, on a break. Well-deserved. Yeah, yeah. It uh, It's a little weird, but um, it feels good. Weird in that you don't know what to do with yourself or? You know, I mean, uh, the day after I walked out of the station for the last time, I was on a plane to Jamaica the next day. So um, that was great. And I would say the biggest difference um, when I really felt like, you know, I was retired was was flying back you know when you return from a vacation and you sort of have that sense of dread of like oh man so many emails to deal with tomorrow and i don't want to go back to work i just want to be lying on the beach watching these jamaicans walk by offering me tons of weed and just you know like enjoy that but so so that was noticeably different there was no sense of dread of like you know I got to get back to work. So you're high yeah. as fuck right now. Is that what's happening? <laughs> uh, well, no. Okay. But, All right. Just checking. Know. Just yeah. <laughs> so how long have you guys been doing this? 2018 was it? Almost four years. It'll be four years mm -hmm. in June. Is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. Yeah. We we're trying to we've been trying to figure out the formula and uh, <laughs> and we're still working on it. But it's been the last two years we've reached out to AAA, a lot of AAA radio people and, and just uh, talking to them about music, just old music, because, uh, you know, they're tired of uh, being hit up about new music that you got to you really got to check this out. Yeah. These guys are exploding. Well, you know, sometimes you do. I think if there's one thing that's been consistent in my career, it's always been a love of new music. And, you know, that that never changed. And that was really what drove me to radio. It wasn't the other way around. You know, I think that there's always been two different kind of people who are in radio, the people who are in it for the music and the people who are in it for radio. And for me, it was radio. It was music that drove me to radio and, and not yeah. the other way around, you know. Do you have a preferred, so you like the new music, but do you have a preferred format, lack of a better term? You know, um, I would say 
that would depend on the era. You know, (laughs) if you ask me what's my favorite format in 2022, it's AAA. I can't think of any other format that is as broad. And, you know, certainly alternative today is not what it was when I was at WHFS in the 90s. And, you know, the whole new wave thing that I got to be a part of in the 80s was unique unto itself as well. I don't know if this makes any sense, but there's been some consistency in all of the stations that I worked at that were, you know, primarily focused on, with the exception of one five-year period when I worked at K-Rock in New York, when it was classic rock and had a playlist of about 300 songs. Was that, that was during Stern? Was that during Stern time? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. We, we arrived at K-Rock at the, within months of each other, actually. Wow. (laughs) Who was who were your early influences? What uh, what was wh- who was the the talent or the radio station that made you get excited about music? How old were it you? Was, yeah, I mean it was WLIR. That's where I grew that- up on Long Island. That was the station I grew up listening to in my formative years. You know, as a teenager, and then later when I when I got to college, it was just a great radio station. You know, I. Um, discovered this thing called FM. And I remember early on, and I, and it was WLIR that played, uh, I think it was like Thick as a Brick by Jethro Tull. <laughs> and, you know, if you know that album, it's one song broken up into two sides. <laughs> you know, when they, they played all of side one of Thick as a Brick and described that as there's the new song from Jethro Tull, which is 20 minutes in length. I was like, what? What is this FM thing? That's a bathroom uh, break or yeah. maybe a, maybe time to smoke out break. <laughs> yeah. So that was sort of an early memory. But, yeah. you know, LIR before it became the station that dared to be different in, you know, around 1981 or so. It was still an amazing station that played everything from, you know, a Pat Metheny record, a jazz record to the Sex Pistols. You know, it it was a station that was staffed by a lot of people who were very passionate about music and they didn't care where that music came from. You know, somehow they made it all work. In those early 80s, there were two stations that you guys, you know, you're probably aware of this. It was KROQ on the West Coast and it was WLIR on the East Coast. And I think we were um, fans of each other to a degree. I know my old... uh, you know, cohort Larry the Duck was influenced by Jed the Fish. That's how he came up with his name. We used to trade cassette tapes and air checks of of the station and were somewhat inspired by, you know, what was great about Caro Q to me was their staff was so irreverent and it was so completely obvious that they were just having fun. The people who cared about that music and cared about that approach with radio, uh, I think we're sort of anxious to, you know, spread the gospel a little bit about, hey, check out what's being done in L.A. With WLIR, you know, we were sort of in a fortunate situation, I guess, because the station... Uh, was a mess and the FCC was trying to take the station's license away and the owners had all kinds of problems. At one point we had to move the transmitter to the roof of our building because we lost the lease. 
for our transmitter site. And there was a period there where you could only hear us in like a five mile radius before that was corrected. But all of these events <laughs> led up to kind of this approach. We used to describe it like, you know, we were in the New York market and the station when operating at full capacity could be heard in New York. Yeah, you'd have to rig some antennas. But the philosophy was like, we're going up against all these big New York City, 50,000 watt radio stations. We're this little station out on Long Island. They have tanks. We have hand grenades. What are we going to do to stand out? And so the decision was made, you know, we can't compete on that level. So let's do our own thing and um, see what happens. And that's that's kind of how the whole dare to be different approach evolved. What lessons did you take that you learned at LIR to other stations? Well, you know, I I would say um, I learned a lot from Dennis McNamara, who was the program director, who who was the guy who made the very bad decision of putting me on the air at some point. And, you know, my formative years, I spent seven years at LIR. And then I moved to K-Rock in New York, which started out as not a classic rock radio station, but we were going to go compete against WNEW-FM. And it was going to be an emphasis on playing new music, which was highly attractive to me. So I got that gig. I was really excited about it. New York City. Sadly, about a year after I I went there, the station went classic rock and decided we're going to hang our hat on Howard Stern and nothing else really matters after that. However, I did meet somebody at K-Rock who, uh, you know, was very pivotal in my career. And that was Robert Benjamin, who was a fellow DJ and he did 10 to 2 at night. I did the overnight swing shift, you know, for that time period when as DJs crossing over at two o'clock in the morning, we hung out. We talked about what we liked. We started plotting and, and thinking about we got to find a station that we can take over and do what we want. We actually, thinking back about this, I haven't thought about this in a long time. In order to fortify our presentation when that opportunity presented itself, we spent a lot of time on the phone. I remember calling retail outlets and getting sales reports and trying to create, you know, a document, a presentation to someone in some unknown market with a corporate mentality that looked this is what is working look at the sales there was this thing sound scan now now it's streaming numbers that everybody cares mm-hmm. about but sound scan was this company that measured the correlation between radio airplay and album sales and you could see it you know when we got on a record and started playing it a lot it sold you know and what better research could you have than some data where someone likes something so much they're willing to pay for it and put their own money down. And so if we were the conduit to expose a lot of those artists or those songs, we just felt like something was going on. So I met Robert Benjamin a couple of years down the road. Things happened. He applied for the PD position at WHFS in 1991. Tom Calderon had been there and Tom was leaving to actually, ironically, come back and program WDRE, which was, you know, what rose out of the ashes of WLIR. And everything worked out. And and Robert got the job and he called me up and he said, 
come on, let's go. And so two months later, I left New York and drove down to Washington, D.C. and started doing the morning show there and was the music director in APD. And, you know, it was very fortuitous because... The year was 1991. Yeah. Were you at uh, the 930 Club? Did you happen to see Nirvana? Or I didn't go to that show that night, but I, you know, several staff members. In fact, there's a guy I worked with named Johnny Riggs, and um, Johnny was at that show that night. And you could look this up on the internet. Johnny, um, for whatever reason, after the gig was over, he um, went up to the stage and grabbed the set list. Really? Which was written on a pizza box. <laughs> and he held on to it for years and years and years. And finally got around to selling it, I think maybe four or five years ago, got about 20 grand for that pizza box. <laughs> That's quite a pizza box. That had the Nirvana set list <laughs> when Nevermind had just come out. Yeah. Yeah. Great time to be at Alternative Radio. And- yeah. Well, you know, the thing was, I mean, it, it was 91. It, grunge was happening. We were in a competitive situation in Washington, D.C. The big badass rock station, D.C. 101, had this great heritage, killer signal, just destroyed HFS. It wasn't even close. And when we came in and started making changes, and I'm not saying we were geniuses, but our timing was great. Yeah. And then the grunge thing exploded, and suddenly we were beating DC 101. Increasing restlessness and trouble with authority figures create problems for Bob. You're listening to Bob Wah. 991. Local music on WHFS. HFS. Yeah. 991HFS. The house band, Tripping Daisy. I got a girl. You heard Counting Crows before that. In today's local music spotlight, Eggs. Ocelot, the name of that song from their new CD. A collection of crustaceans and flotsam. All of the material previously released on 7-inch singles. With the exception of one track. Many thousand watts between two big cities. Thank you, guys. That is so cool. Eggs put the HFS theme on their CD. 99.1. So full of life. HFS. So full of energy. And power! We had a great run there. And, (laughs) um, you know, we were competitive from a rating standpoint with DC 101 for a while. That was definitely, I would say, the most talented staff I ever worked with at HFS. Okay, we're learning all about Bob Wah, but now it's time to dig deep into the K-Rock songs from 1985, and we will do that right after the break. Welcome back to the What Difference Does It Make podcast and our guest, Bob Waugh. We're going to talk the, the music that was played in 1985 at K-Rock. Where were you in 1985? Was that? 1985, I, it was at the tail end of my career at LIR. Okay. I, was, I remember going to, the last thing I did for LIR was I went to Philadelphia to cover Live Aid. Okay. Mm. And then 
Um, shortly after that, I took the job at K-Rock. Were you at Live Aid or you, were you in Philadelphia or were you? Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. So you can give us a little insight. Yeah. Once we get it to number 49. So <laughs> we're going to talk songs 50 to 41. Number 50, Vienna Calling. I don't know if you watched Saturday Night Live, but I watched this video and he reminded me of the guy who bought a boat, who just bought a boat, who's just kind of <laughs> conceited, like, hey, here I am, you know, just... <laughs> I'm, I'm on a boat. I'm on. Yeah, Falco reminded me of I'm on a boat type guy. Like I, yeah. I love this attitude <laughs> that, that he personifies. Um, I thought it was kind of fun. Did, what do you remember of uh, Falco and Vienna Calling? I mean, Falco for me because Der Kommissar was a song that I played. We used to host an import show on LIR called Off the Boat, and it was on Sunday nights. And Larry inherited that show after I left and I had inherited that show from Ray White who's a great inspiration to me and a great jock and we used to literally drive to the airport every Friday afternoon and pick up 12 inch singles and you know one of the first songs I remember playing and I may have been one of the first people in the United States to play Dirk Commissar yeah. because I distinctly remember having that 12 inch single and that was the version I always preferred as opposed to After the Fire who had the hit yeah, Falco, you know, it's kind of a tragic story. He um, he died in a car accident when he was 40. I think he was like on vacation in the Caribbean or something. Vienna Calling, I think, was completely in German, wasn't it? probably had access to the music before k-rock because it came off the boat and you you dug it up before it was shipped off to across the country to, to uh, la I, I think in in some cases yeah you know tom stolby thompson twins culture club susie and the banshees I, I, I mean it's a long list of records that you know i think had their first exposure on that sunday night show at lir all right so explain what was on this in this box on Fridays did you was this something you ordered there was a company that was literally they were based at LaGuardia I'm so, no Kennedy JFK and <laughs> and we would drive there the, the label was important records okay. so bell, you yeah. guys at all not at all I but, don't remember yeah yeah but, but, so, you know, live by your name okay they, they back when imports were a thing they got these 12 inch singles and remixes and literally every friday they would get their shipment and i would drive to the airport meet this guy jim jim would take me into the warehouse he'd be like here take this take this and i'd walk out with a stack of records and then from friday afternoon until sunday night at 10 o'clock would listen to everything and then try to come up wow. with 60 minutes worth of music that's fine. And then no one's pushing them on you. No one is saying, oh, you got to play this. You got to play this. No, no. Yeah. In fact, you know, the irony was, truth be told, I mean, you know, there were some things that we played a year in advance before yeah. they ever hit the air through 
traditional commercial radio, like some songs that really went on to be big hits, like let's say Love and Rockets. Was this a secret? Was this an industry an industry secret, important records? I mean, who who else was going there? Was it open to the public, just the trade? No, well, so this important records would distribute these imports to local retail outlets. Like we had a record store down the street on Hempstead Turnpike called Zigzag Records. <laughs> and if you were, you know, a music guy, you would go to Zigzag, you would talk to Bob Bortnick, who was the stoner guitarist from this <laughs> band Dancing Hoods that ran Zigzag. And you'd be like, what'd you get in this week? And, you know, he would say whatever it was, you know, and try this or it would be playing in the store when you walked in. Let's keep it rolling here. You were at Live Aid. We've talked about the Thompson Twins on how they were possibly the biggest band. They were so big that Madonna jumped up on stage to be with them uh, to, to sing. Uh, I think it was Revolution is what they what they did. So this, this album, what was the name of the album, Holly? Oh, um, Here's to Future Days. So this was the highest ranking song in 1985. It's King for a Day. Was Thompson Twins a big deal at uh, for you guys? Yeah, Thompson Twins were huge, but by the time King for a Day came out, I mean, it was really more about songs like Love on Your Side yeah, or Lies or, you know, I think their biggest hit was Hold Me Now. They had um, quite a run. It's pretty amazing. It yeah. 85. I know you well and I can tell Something's on your I think they won the Screamer of the Week honors uh, more than once, for sure. <laughs> Quite an honor. Please explain the Screamer of the Week to everyone. <laughs> Screamer of the Week was this concept that was born at WLIR, and it basically was the song of the week. What's your favorite new song of the week? And each jock would cast their ballot, if you will, and talk about it during their show. Hey, my pick for Screamer of the Week is Joan Jett, I Love Rock and Roll. It honestly, the credit should go to John DeBella. He really kind of came up with that concept. And after he left LIR and went to WMMR in Philadelphia, we just continued on with it. And it, and it really kind of developed into something. The listeners would call in and vote. Yeah. We, we had a phone line, it was called the WLIR airline and it literally was staffed by interns we had 10 phone lines we'd open up the voting on thursday people would call in and vote for their favorite new song and we would play you know six or eight songs that were brand new on thursday people would vote and at the end of the night 10 o'clock we would christen the new screamer of the week <laughs> which would ultimately you know go into a power rotation so each jock got to choose which song they liked 
Yeah, each jock got to choose what song they like, and often they would, um, being the creative people that they were, they would they would create these little pieces of production. Yeah, <laughs> you played before the song, uh, telling you why you should you should vote for whatever it was. Did you guys have some side hustles going on? Is that uh, this this song's going to win it? My song's going to win it over yours. I mean, you're this, this song oh, like some action. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Everything's a bet. Come on. Yeah, we should have. Um, you know, screamer of the week evolved into, uh, of course, the year end screamer of the year. Yeah. You know, and, and what was the best song of the year? So, I mean, it was really just kind of another way to sort of do a countdown show. Let's go now to number 48. This is OMD, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. The song is Secret. Was this ever a screamer of the week for you? You know, it probably was. OMD, it was really, I think it was the next year that they really yeah. had their breakthrough when John Hughes decided to use If You Leave in uh, Pretty in Pink, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, prior to that, I mean, the first song I remember hearing from OMD was Anola Gay. And, you know, that was, you know, something that definitely was sort of a trailblazer. These were like club songs. Did you guys, were you spinning in the clubs at all or doing any of that stuff? Uh, I did a club night. It was uh, Screamer of the Week at 007 in Hempstead, <laughs> Long Island. Nice. Uh, you got the sweet gig. It, it was pretty sweet because actually <laughs> I didn't even have to spin. I just had to show up and kind of introduce stuff, oh, nice. you know. So, yeah, that was that was uh, that was good. It almost killed me, but <laughs> it was fun. It almost killed you being at the club. Well, you know, being in a in a club in the New York City area in the 80s. Um, <laughs> okay. You do the math. Yeah. <laughs> I got it. Yes, I got it. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was a little decadent. Yeah. Yes. Let's put it that way. Well, shows aren't that decadent anymore, but OMD is still touring and they are coming to town this summer. Does that, yeah. does, mm-hmm. do nostalgic bands interest you? Do you have any interest? I, I see you have an Alt-J shirt on. You're like, mm-hmm. you know, they're actually, they've been around for 10 years now or something. They've, they're, they're seasoned. Yeah. Yeah. So but, uh, I don't know. I think it's going to be sort of interesting. I fear these older bands going out for fear of is this going to be horrible or right, yeah. is it going to be kind of cool? Um, so, I mean, the two bands that are, you know, going out this summer, OMD and Tears for Fears, mm-hmm. you know, I think uh, it'll be interesting. I've seen some of the stuff that Kurt. And Roland have done, you know, like on CBS Saturday morning and Tears for Fears looks like, you know, it might be okay. Yeah. Um, making current, making music for, you know, it's, it's still appealing. Yeah. It's not a, um, you know, you're not reminiscing. 
Right. Well, you, you often wonder, though, you know, what, what are their vocals going to sound like? You know, yeah. there's a reason why Robert Plant won't try to sing Zeppelin songs anymore. You know, I mean, there's many reasons, but one of them, certainly he doesn't have the range he used to and he doesn't want to do that. You know, he doesn't want to kind of go out and not be the guy he was. So it sort of goes full, full circle. One of the first interviews I ever did at LIR was with Elvis Costello and one of the last interviews I did at WRNR was with Elvis Costello. We did a 50-minute Zoom thing together. And he is an example of an artist who I think I've seen him many, 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 many times over the years. He hasn't lost it one bit. And um, he's, he's just amazing. So it's so great to like go out and see Costello and the imposters, which might be even better than Costello and the attractions. Um, so I think it kind of runs the gamut. You know, I remember seeing New Order a couple of years ago at Meriwether Post Pavilion, which is our big shed, our big outdoor venue in Maryland. Um, wonderful place. And it was great. Yeah. You know, it, it was everybody sang and, you know, it was a really good night. OK, so here's a band. We're going to number 47. This is Oingo Boingo, a band that feels like it's just an L.A. band. The song is Just Another Day. LIR's take on Oingo Boingo and, and was there a band that, that you loved in, on the East Coast that just never was able to, to cross over to all so, the I mean, we, we loved Oingo Boingo but certainly not to the degree KROQ did <laughs> uh, and, and I agree with you I think you know they were just a delight and Danny Elfman is a genius and as a composer has just done such a great body of work besides Dead Man's Party uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other Oingo Boingo songs we played. We dabbled a little bit. <laughs> but to answer your question, I mean, the first band that might come to mind for me, and it's not fair to say they never really made it, but in a lot of ways, the Ramones never really made it. Yeah. I think in 1985, actually, this is kind of ironic because of what's going on in Ukraine right now, but in 85, the Ramones got a little political. And they they put out this song as a B-side called My Brain is Hanging Upside Down, parenthetically titled Bonzo Goes to Bitburg. It was a song about Ronald Reagan yeah. visiting a cemetery in Germany full of SS soldiers. And Joey, being Jewish, was like, 
We're going to write about this and mock him, which they did. Joey, I, I'm proud to say, was a friend of mine, and he used to, uh, I'm going back to the LIR days now, but when I did the overnight at LIR, I would answer the phone, and at three o'clock in the morning, you know, Bob, it's Joey. I'm like, <laughs> no, it's not. He's like, no, man, it is, and, you know, he lived on St. Mark's Place, and at night, could get LIR really well and was up all hours of the night and listened to my show and would call and ask for requests. <laughs> what is yeah, Joey requesting? So he actually... Like I, 60s girl groups, I would imagine, or something? No, actually, his brother had a band. And he was like, could you play my brother's band? But uh, yeah, Joey was just, you know, the sweetest guy and loved him, got to work with him at K-Rock in New York for, for a minute too. Joey did some some radio for us there. There's another uh, legendary DJ named Vince Scalsa. Oh yeah, who, Idiot's Delight, Idiot's right? Delight, yeah, right. And Joey that. was a frequent guest on Idiot's Delight. That aired on Sunday night, and so uh, it was pretty uh, not unusual for the three of us to all be at the station at the same time. Vin would have me on for the last hour of his show, and then Joey would hang out, and then I would take over from Vin and start the overnight show. Um, speaks very highly of him. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Let's move on to 46. This is a song that I forgot. Ollie, you remember Say It Again by Dance Society? I did not remember it uh, until I watched the video, and then I remembered it. And really, they sound remarkably like Dead or Alive. I, I think I agree. Yeah, you did you play? Do you remember them, Bob? Um, yeah, I do remember Dance Society. To me, they were sort of like a blip on the radar, and I yeah. kind of agree with you. It's like often when bands have success, you know, the directive from the label is go find me the next dead or alive. Yeah. You know, they had a big hit when you spin me around and that's what A&R guys would come back with. I found this band dance society 
And yeah. <laughs> and there are always bands willing to comply, you know, wanting to sound like, you know, the band before them. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, that, that never ends. I mean, just uh, listen to top 40 yeah. and you could hear that, uh, that trap sound yeah. still. And it's an old axiom yeah. in, in music, I think, you know. Okay, number 45, New Order, as we talked about. The song is Subculture. It's the first of two songs that are on the chart in 1985. And you still love New Order? Apparently you saw them a few years back. and Yeah, I think, you know, love New Order. Power, Corruption, and Lies would be my go-to for New Order. I think, if memory serves, Bizarre Love Triangle actually came out the following year. And that, of course, was like, the big breakthrough in a lot of ways for them. I mean, people think of Blue Monday as being the seminal 12 inch biggest selling indie release ever at the time. Uh, And that was quite a phenomenon, but the songwriting, you know, I remember going to see New Order and it was later, it was like late nineties maybe, you know, and just being amazed how you know, there were 20,000 people who, like, seemed to know all of the words. <laughs> yeah. I would imagine when you're you're at JFK and you're going through uh, important records, hand you some stuff. Do you remember like getting a New Order record or like, oh my God, here it is? You know, like, like excitement about uh, something new from a from a band. Yeah, I, um, you know, most of the time it was a lot of bands that I'd never heard of, but right. you know, there were those occasions where, you know. Uh-huh. You got to come this Friday because we're going to have the new 12 inch from New Order, whatever it was. Yeah. Number 44, this is The Cure, a band. I don't know if Holly, are you familiar with this band? <laughs> the Cure? I believe this is Holly's yes, favorite he's band. Joking. feel about the cures performance at the rock and roll hall of fame induction ceremony well what are you asking me specifically if i how i no i mean this maybe goes back a little bit to and i've seen the cure kind of in their heyday but i wasn't blown away by that i was kind of hoping for a little bit more i you know there seemed to be some reluctance to sort of really play the hits and he says that you know some of the songs that some of the biggest hits he just doesn't enjoy them. I don't need to hear Friday I'm in love. <laughs> no, me like either. Hear, I would like to hear a night like this. Mm. I'd like to hear cut. I'd like to hear oh so many 
pure songs. Yeah, their shows are now like three hours long, though. I mean, they they do uh, expand on those. And I guess maybe at the the Rock Hall performance, he just wanted to. What didn't you like about? I take it you didn't like the performance, Bob. I don't know. I just I, I was excited that you know the Cure were actually being embraced by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and I I kind of. I don't know. I guess I was hoping for uh, more big guitars from The Cure, which I think they do exceedingly well. Yeah. Yeah, The Rock Hall is their opportunity to showcase, you know, have people remember songs and then they can go to the concert and then they you can play 17 seconds or whatever they, you know, <laughs> they want to play. A forest. And that opportunity is going to come up because hopefully, like Tears for Fears, they're coming out with a new album. Yeah. I, actually, I think I heard an interview. He's got like two in the can that are ready to come out. Um, I think that's true. Yeah. So, meaning we're going to see the cure. Again. Also, his voice sounds really good, really strong. Uh, let's go to <laughs> all right, Dead or Alive. My heart goes bang. Another banger from Dead or Alive. Yeah, it was a big year for them. Again, I'm, I'm going to say through the um, filter of like 37 years ago, you know, Dead or Alive, it was You Spin Me Round. That was a huge club record in New York at the time. What was that album? Youthquakes? Youthquake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Youthquake. Yeah. Did you play all those songs was, or was it just, you know, you, know, you, spin I, me round? you know, I think I personally wasn't playing Dead or Alive at, at K-Rock in New York at that time. Yeah. But yeah, it was inescapable. I can't tell by your <laughs> by your description. Did you like the music? Did you grab? It doesn't sound like that was your your type of music. Um, you know, I appreciated it for what it was. I mm-hmm. think which was just like a, a dance hit, a club dance hit. Yeah, you know that you heard every single night when you were out. Yeah, when you wanted to fill up the dance floor, that's what you that's what you played. You spun you spin me around, put that on, and fill up the dance floor. It's funny. Record, record baby, right, round, round, round. Right. Number 42, this is a band that is of its time in 1985. This is the Power Station. Some mm-hmm. like it hot. We want to multiply. Are you going to do it? I know you qualify. Are you going to do it? Are you gonna do it? Feel 
I prefer this one to Bang a Gong. I like this, uh, you know, an original song by the Power Station. What were your thoughts on Power Station? Especially, they played Live Aid, and you were you were there. So, yeah. were you uh, were you a fan of Duran Duran? And and there's the offshoot was the was the station all in on this? Um, well, I mean, I'm gonna go old school here and start with Robert Palmer. You know, who I Robert Palmer was someone we lost way too young, and he made some great records and going back to my, you know, indoctrination into that FM radio thing, sneaking Sally through the alley, (laughs) you know, um, what a great record, you know, being a fan of Robert Palmer and then the Duran Duran guys forming like the first super group of like the eighties that nobody really saw coming. That was just, um, fucking cool man you know and yeah. you know um tony thompson the drummer, drummer from chic and added the terror, everything it, it was great tony thompson added everything to that i mean i think he he really i mean he made their sound tony thompson did the heavy lifting on on those songs uh, but robert palmer is a great front man too 100 yeah. yeah i would imagine you were disappointed then when you get to see power station at live aid and it's not robert palmer I don't have much of a memory of that day, to be honest with you, other than the fact that it was about 98 degrees and it was like humid and it was a work day and it was chaotic. And um, a lot of it was like, you know, the sort of like not being out in the crowd and working basically in 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 a room, you know, where you'd have to like, run out to catch some of the, the, of the performances, but then get back into your little hole to like <laughs> yeah. do radio, a, a remote from Philadelphia back to New York at that time was challenging. You don't just get to enjoy it as an audience member. Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, I curated the HF festival for 12 years at RFK stadium in the nineties. Wow. Those were iconic festivals. Those are amazing. Yeah. All those, yeah. So all those I, I booked the uh, the bands for that, um, and that was sort of that's another story. But uh, I, I know I want <laughs> yeah. to hear about the, those shows because that mid nineties at HFS, yeah, at RFK, so, hundred thousand kids at the these shows. Well, at RFK it was sixty thousand. Okay. The biggest one we did was the year we did it in Baltimore at where the Ravens play now. That was ninety thousand. Um, but the shows sold out every year. Yeah. Um, my point being, though, it's like I did not see a lot of it. Yeah. What was your favorite HFS show that, that you're like you can point to that's going on your tombstone? So like I did, the, I did the, the HFS in '95. Or- it was probably '95 or '96. There was a year the Ramones played. Joey dedicated a song to me on stage. Oh. What song? Courtney Love was a prize walk-on, as was Tony Bennett, because we didn't have enough dressing rooms. It was just what's known as a pipe and drape between Tony Bennett and Courtney Love. <laughs> I, I did witness Courtney Love flash Tony Bennett. Yeah. Right. I just pulled up her shirt. Oh. And, then, hey! <laughs> and Tony Bennett was totally nonplussed. Yes. He was just like, whatever. He's seen it all. Yeah. So that was a memorable one, but there were, there were many, um, you know, that was occupied a huge part of my life for a long time. Mm-hmm. Probably worked on that six months out of the year. Yeah. I'd sort of come off the air for a while 
just did a two-hour midday shift so I could focus on the HF Festival. That's got to be rewarding, though, once it come, when it comes together and for it to be so huge, you know, so successful. Without question, one of the best things I did in my career. I'm very mm. proud of the work we did. And the HF Festival really is thought of by a lot of people as, you know, don't forget, this is before Bonnaroo. This is before yeah. Coachella. Caro Q had the weenie roast which was a great event, but HF Festival was bigger. It was bigger. You guys I were doing. Remember. You guys were doing football stadiums. It's craziness. So yeah, it, it was really, really a great, great event, and we worked very hard on it. We we paid particular attention to making sure that the artists would walk away thinking, "Wow, that was great." Yeah. Radio festivals suck, but that was great. Yeah. Because we felt like once the word got around between bands who talk, mm-hmm. you know, they would say that show in, at RFK, that radio festival is different. We did crazy things. We, we really went out of our way to accommodate artists in many different ways. We had an oxygen bar backstage. We had <laughs> vegetarian uh, catering that was sort of before its time done by this really cool local restaurant called planet X. We had leopard skin couches in the dressing rooms. We had a masseuse on site. We just wanted to make it one giant hang for everybody. And what we found is the bands would come early on and, um, you know, I remember semi-sonic had this huge hit closing time. They were the first band on the stage that day. Yeah. And Dan Wilson was still there at 10 o'clock at night. Like people wanted to hang out and watch everybody else. That's a good measurement of success. All right. Let's wrap this up. Talking head. Did David Byrne ever play? Uh, I, I'm sure maybe with R&R you've got, do you have a relationship with David Byrne at all? This is, yeah. uh, he went to, they went to school at uh, Risby, RISD. So I don't know if you, mm-hmm. you probably listened to HFS back in the day, but 41 is talking heads road to nowhere. So David Byrne um, is from Baltimore, you know. Um, yeah, he went to the Rhode Island School of Design. Honestly, my interactions with David Byrne were difficult early on during Talking Heads' heyday. Yeah. Not an easy guy to interview or talk to. He is completely different today. When you see David Byrne on the Stephen Colbert show, he's like the happiest guy alive. <laughs> he was not that way in the 80s. But, you know, I think what's significant about Road to Nowhere is that it's such a timeless song. I mean, he's still performing it during, you know, American Utopia on Broadway. And Talking Heads 
top five band for me. You know, I, I, I can think of few others who were as innovative as Talking Heads. I think it's really a shame that, you know, there's this giant chasm that exists between Chris France, Tina Weymouth and David Byrne. And I doubt that we'll ever see them. You know, I guess they, they played at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction um, when they were inducted. But can you think of a bigger payday? Oh, right. Out there? You know, the organizers of Coachella or some of these other festivals who have a ton of money, there must be so much money on the table <laughs> yeah. for a Talking Heads reunion. That will never happen. It's really yeah. too bad. 2022 looks like an exciting time for you right now. You know, um, I, I've got a lot of stuff I need to take care of. My daughter is about to ship off to college in September, uh, August. That's but exciting. yeah, other than that, you know, um, I'm just going to take some time and then probably get back into it, but not as a program director. Yeah, I'll read about your name in All Access very in, uh, before the end of the year. Maybe we'll see. Maybe. Okay. All right. <laughs> or completely out. Are you talking about getting completely out? He's bringing the no. talking heads together. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. 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 That, that's, that's my dream. Um, no, I'm sure it'll be music related and most likely radio related. You know, I would relish the opportunity to just be able to do a show and, you know, continue to kind of take advantage of the relationships that I have established over a long period of time with a lot of different artists and be able to, you know, be a conduit the way I, I have been. I just, the management part of it and managing a staff and reporting to corporate is not something I'm terribly interested in doing anymore. Yeah. As I mentioned, the, the pipes are still in shape. They sound amazing. So uh, yeah, it'd be nice to hear your, hear your voice on air. I hope I um, look forward to whenever that does happen. That'd be nice. Well, thank you. Yeah. And thank you so much for all your time. Well, thanks for having me and uh, good luck to you guys. And uh, yeah, this, we, I think we will. All right. Another stellar episode with a radio legend, Bob Waugh. That was a good chat. I love talking to radio people and they, he's chock full of stories with our chunk of songs. I really want to get in on some important record action. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was cool. I uh, got access to these songs, and I'm sure a lot of the reason we heard songs on K-Rock was because WLIR got a hold of it and started playing it, and K-Rock following them, and like, well, we got to play this too. So yeah, wonderful talk. We do this every Friday. New episode drop on Fridays. Those are our favorite days. So please subscribe. Follow us on social media. Where do they find us? On social media, you can find us at WDDIM Podcast and YouTube, What Difference Does It Make Podcast. If you feel so inclined, write a review. Sounds great. All right. So until our next episode, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.